0: poem, a few lines of a poem from Rumi, he says, if God said, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not any act I would not bow to. God said, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, feeling or act I wouldn't bow to. So that's really what I want to talk about today. That's really the talk right there. So, um, good night. <laughs> 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 it's a little bit about poetry. It just nails it in three lines. It takes the rest of us three days to try and talk about. So... Um, you know, I write this talk in honor of the, the challenge and the difficulty it is to be in a human body, you know, to be human, to be awake and conscious with a feeling heart and a sensitive organism that we have and uh, the inevitable pains and losses and insecurities and challenges and health issues and heartbreaks and whatever else that we go through in life, um, that it's, it's challenging. It's my, my definition of dukkha, the Buddha's first noble truth. Uh, it's hard to be human, challenging to be human. And so that's our condition. You know, that's, what, that's how it is to be in this world. And we're not doing it wrong if that's the case, if we're finding it hard or difficult or a struggle at times. And the teachings ask us how do we uh, relate to that? How do we hold that? How do we embrace that? Do we embrace that? Do we fight it? Do we resist it? Do we judge ourselves? Do we blame somebody? Do we rage at the world or the president or God or whoever? So... um, or when people's cell phones go off in the middle of the talk. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) It's all right, as long as it's not mine, which happens sometimes. (laughs) It'll happen next for It'll happen next, thank you. So, um, I came across this this, uh, invitation, the invitation, the poem from Araya Mountain Dreamer, which was very popular some years ago. And... It speaks to this idea of embracing our humanness and uh, the, messy, uh, the messy, juicy, beautiful, challenging aspects of that. She says, um, It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you'll risk looking like a fool for love for your dream and for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you have touched the center of your own sorrow, if you have been opened by life's betrayals or have become shriveled and closed from fear of pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it, fade it, or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own, If you can dance with wildness and let the ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful or realistic or remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you are telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself, if you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul, if you can be faithless and therefore trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty even when it is not pretty every day and if you can source your own life from its presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand at the edge of the lake and shout to the silver of the moon, yes. It doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done to feed the children. It doesn't interest me who you are what you know, or how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be left alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in those empty moments. So that's called the invitation. Very beautiful, challenging um, Words, really, you know, to live up to. <clears throat> I like particularly like this line of speaks to what I'm speaking to tonight, I want to know if you can sit with the pain, mine or yours, without moving to hide it, fade it, or fix it. How do we open to that in ourselves and others without trying to get rid of it, make it better, cover over it, all the things that we normally do? So, so often um, we come to the spiritual path um, with all kinds of funny ideas about what it is, uh, including sort of hopeful idealizations that it's going to remove all our pain, make us happy, make us live happily ever after nibbana, and um, not have to do any of the really dirty, messy, painful work of spiritual work. Right, how many? How many of you have been... Sitting in meditation, waiting <laughs> right okay, I'm ready. I'm open. Just zap me <laughs> or something. <laughs> blast me off. <laughs> Get me out of here into into the coolness of Nirvana, as if this these things exist in time and place they don't they exist outside of time and place.. <clears throat> And yet when we forget, when in our struggle, in our seeking of some experience, some some satori somewhere, that um, it really comes down to how we're showing up, how we're meeting this moment. I came across this great line from Byron Katie today that said, uh, it doesn't matter how long you can get enlightened for, that was how she said it. Because all that matters is this moment, right? We think of enlightenment, and then we think, "Oh, goody, that's forever, right? You're enlightened in this moment. We have an awakened moment, awakened perception, perhaps, in this moment. And then there's the next moment. Then our knee starts hurting, and we start <laughs> hating it. And we wish, you know, we'd had that operation when we were 12. And, you know, and then we're suddenly not so awake in that moment. You know, our partner left us a really nasty message about why we didn't go shopping that day and suddenly we're back in our contracted, egoic position. And So how do we cultivate, how do we, you know, what's your relationship to this quality of presence that we can bring to each moment? This is really what's important in mindfulness practice. How do we show up in this moment the poet Wilkes says, I want to unfold, let no place in me hold itself closed, for where I am closed, I am false. I want to unfold, let no place in me hold itself close, closed. Right? So practice, one understanding of practice is, is an opening, a turning towards, a meeting. All right where we're closed, where we're shut down in fear, in contraction, in separation, is not really uh, expressing the depth of who we are, the depth of our capacity. So where are you closed in in your experience? Where does your heart close? Where does your mind close? In judgment, in fear, in separation, in comparing, in... All the different ways in competition and envy. And how are we when, when our hearts close? Do we close to ourselves in that moment? Which is usually the, the harder closing? We have an experience and then we shut down to ourselves, we shut down to our experience. And there's a rejection goes on, which is even more painful than the initial experience. So how do we stay open? Even when our hearts closing, when when we're when we're struggling, when we're in strife. So, I want to focus a lot tonight on how we um, how we uh, maintain or cultivate this quality of openness towards ourselves, because it's really that relationship to our moment to moment experience is what dictates how we relate to everything else and everybody else. So um, this is from Byron Katie who has a, as many of you know, um, a lot of her teaching is about loving what is. She wrote a book about it called Loving What Is. And um, it's a great, I think it's a great way of holding this practice, loving what is. How do we love what is? And when, doesn't mean loving what is in a romantic way oh my knee pain i'm so in love with my knee pain no it's how do we meet it with awareness and presence and openness and invitation and acceptance <laughs> and if i put these glasses on i know i'm not going to be able to read anything else ever again that's true okay i hope it makes me look scholarly or something so the lecture for this evening is, um, <laughs> um, jolly good so, uh, I should, this makes me speak more English. Oh <laughs> I'm happy to be this 63-year-old woman, she says. I love that I weigh 160 pounds. I love that I'm not any smarter than I am. I love that my skin is getting wrinkled and loose, and I love that some mornings I'm almost blind. And there's just a haze of world. I can barely see where I'm going. I love where my hands have been put, and I love how I'm breathed and positioned and angled. Why would I be you or someone else when all we can walk up a, when we can all walk up a staircase, we can all stand and move in our own way? No one has more or less opportunity to be themselves, to love and be content with themselves. Why would I compare or compete? Comparing is nothing more than believing the story that a past would invent as a future. <laughs> it's so much simpler to be what I am, as if I could be anything else. So... Being what we are, you know, really—that's so much of our practice. Being what we are, discovering what we are, allowing what is to be. You know, we're so busy f- trying to not be ourselves, <laughs> in some way, fixing and improving, and how many people are working on themselves here? <laughs> right, like we're project, right? right now. how many of you are working on yourself as a project in meditation right got to improve myself improve my meditation improve my mindfulness improve my attention how do I just be with myself you know what a radical concept but of course it's hard because what shows up isn't it's so fun all the time. You know, we get bored, and we get restless, and we get lonely, and we get sad, and we get fearful, and we get anxious, and we get deficient and empty and all of that. And then we get caught in the trap that something's wrong with us if we're having all that, and we should fix it and change it, and we'd be happier, right? So, as the Buddha and many other teachers have said, it's our relationship that's fundamental. We always come back to this fundamental question how am I in relationship to what's happening because that's the key between whether we suffer or whether we feel peace how many people want to feel peace how many people is peace the, 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 um, the overarching sort of goal of your spiritual life like the driving force for your life i just curious, okay The rest of you don't want to be peaceful, I can tell. <laughs> you can turn the music up. We'll... This is from Herman Hess. He says, you know quite well deep within you that there is only a single magic, a single power, a single salvation, and that is called loving well. Then love your suffering. Do not resist it. Do not free from it. Do not flee from it. It is only your aversion to, the, to it that hurts and nothing else. So, and it's, this is really hard for us to get, to really, you know, that our fleeing from it really doesn't serve us because we're so hardwired to flee from the cold and the hunger and the unpleasantness and, and yet it's that very fleeing that keeps us in bondage, keeps us bound, keeps us in this, this sort of distorted view that somehow what's happening isn't okay and is a problem and if it would only get, go away I would be happy. If only I can find a way to be a get away from it. I just came back from teaching at Esalen. Uh We did a silent yoga meditation retreat, which was really delightful. It was the first time in Esalen's 's forty some year history that it had a silent retreat and since i 'm used and since we're, here we have pretty much all silent retreats, so it was very um Uh, auspicious to bring silence to that beautiful realm. Um, So for those who don't know, it's a beautiful retreat center on on the coast of Big Sur. And um, the reason I'm mentioning that is that whenever I teach a retreat, we ask people to fill in forms about why they're here and if they have any medical issues or uh, things like that. And we get a little background about people. And it's always um, astounding to me how much suffering there is in, when you scratch beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. So people tell us about their, their recent you know, health issues, psychological issues, their past traumas. and uh, there was one person who was going through you know, loss of loved ones and income and family and partner and house all at the same time. You know, just you, just you, just don't know. You meet someone in the street, and you know. Everybody here is going through something, right? Who isn't going through something here? <laughs> right. right? You don't get away with it for very long, even if you if you maybe have a day or two of nothing's going on. Wow. Maybe I'm not looking deep enough. I need to do some. <laughs> okay. I should call my therapist and see what's going on. Maybe I'm avoiding something. You know, we're, we're addicted to. To drama so you know so, I, you know, I guess so I, because i teach a lot and i get i get to remember that, that that what i see on the surface is not really what what what's really going on you know you look around the room and you and you wouldn't you wouldn't think that somebody's just about to have an operation and somebody has breast cancer and this person just lost their father and this person's child is struggling with drug addiction and but that's here all here in the room you know, and many, many other variations of it. It's always a great reminder you know, to take ourselves out of our self-centered preoccupation and to realize that we're all going through something. We're all being asked to carry a great burden. So as Ajahn Chah used to say, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. By running away from suffering, we run towards it, and that's what we do. And with practice, hopefully, we start to wake up to seeing that that running away didn't get us very far. How many of us sit here in a meditation and deal with our unresolved things that we stuffed and repressed and, and hid away? So with mindfulness and with this kind attention whether the practice is suffused with loving-kindness, compassion, or just a, a quality of care within the, 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 the awareness, we can learn to lean into difficulty, learn into, lean into our hearts, lean into our sadness, lean into the loneliness or the emptiness. And that quality of attention that we can bring to our experience can soften the contraction, soften the rigidity, soften our hearts, soften even the very thing that we're struggling with. And it takes practice to do that, to be able to soften the defenses and the fear and the, the views about why it's not wise to do that. You know, If I do that, I'll drown. So right now, maybe all of you can call to mind something that's difficult for you currently place where you struggle, just call it to mind. Maybe it's already here. Maybe it's in your heart, in your body, in your mind, in your memory. All right? So just, just invite it into the space. Right? Invite it into your heart. Difficult person, difficult relationship, a loss. And just notice the quality that you Bring you bring it in with? Is there one, I'm not going near that, or is there, is there an openness, an invitation? And what's it like just to have it be here as part of your experience and to not resist it or fight it or push it away? This is from Rilke again on sadness. He said, you have had many and great sadnesses, but please consider whether these great sadnesses have not gone right to the center of yourself, whether much in you has not altered, whether you have not somewhere at some point of your being undergone a change while you were sad. For our sadnesses are the moments when something new has entered us, something unknown. Our feelings grow mute in the perplexity. Everything in us withdraws, the stillness comes and the new, which no one knows, stands in the midst of it and is silent. So Rilke talks a lot in his poetry about going in, descending into the dark, the difficult, the shadow, as a way, as as, as the ground for our transformation, where our deepest growth happens. And that's certainly true, been true in my experience and people that I know. Much as we avoid and fear and often hate these painful places in ourselves. They're also often the places that we grow the most, that our heart starts to become tenderized, softened by the blows. Sometimes we have a choice. Sometimes our heart hardens and contracts because we can't deal with it, we choose not to deal with it, we numb, we freeze... At other times, we have the capacity, we have the resources to open, to yield, to soften, to feel, to embrace. And that's really a lot of what our practice is asking us to do. This is from Kyle Gabran. He says, Your pain is the breaking of the shell that enclosed your understanding. Pain is the breaking of the shell that enclosed your understanding. So when we, when we move into a heartache, our loss, our sadnesses, that so much illumination can come, so much understanding in those places. This is from Suzuki Roshi. You don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries, and you just sit in the middle of it all, and that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. So there are times when we can open, there are times when we can't open and to know, to be sensitive to those times, those places in us where we, we go, no, enough, I can't take in another natural catastrophe from the TV or the latest figures from Iraq or Afghanistan or um, I can't listen to another person's suffering. You know, and it's good to, to acknowledge when we, have, when we have compassion fatigue, when we're maxed out with our... You know, to remember, the practice is also about balance. How do we how do we stay balanced when we're when we're embattled with strife and pain in our lives? How do we bring nourishment? How do we bring vitality? How do we bring laughter and love and joy? And so, what 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 I normally do is um, I go outside. That's my refuge. As many of you know, I I like the outdoors a lot. And so it's really useful to know what, what your resources are, what resources you when you're in, in difficulty. You know, and I ask this a lot when I work with people. How are you supporting yourself? And often when we're in the most difficult place in our lives, we've, we've at the same time sort of lost all the things that we do that nourish us and support us. Have you ever noticed that? that we stop eating well, we stop sleeping well, we start, you know, whatever it is that, when it's not healthy for us, we start doing. You know, we overwork, we don't take time off, we, you know, we don't go outside or whatever. So so to to, to know for yourself what supports you, what allows your heart to stay in balance. My um, partner has a um, five-year-old uh, special needs son. He has some various brain uh, disorders, and she recently found a school in Atlanta, Georgia, where she will be moving soon with him to to um, really get the maximum uh, learning potential for him with his brain disabilities. So we're going through a separation, and it's very painful, the separations are, and um, and I notice what I find myself doing is going outside a lot, being alone a lot and going outside. This week I spent the, the, a lot of the weekend paddling on, on Richardson Bay, just feeling the support of the ocean. And uh, same when I was a big sur, that same feeling the support of the ocean, just the, the nourishment, you know, with grief and sadness. The, the ocean seems like the perfect place for that. So so I'm just using it as an example to know for yourself what what, what nourishes you When we uh, go through these difficult times, so um, it's interesting. I I I was thinking about this talk, and the the title for the talk was "Embracing Our Humanness," Um, and I realized it's really about embracing our pain. (laughs) Well, that's what the talk's becoming, anyway. Yeah, and that's a big part of our humanist. We also have a whole other side to us that's joyful and beautiful and artistic and creative and playful and silly and wild and wacky and all of that. You know, embracing part of our humanness. Sometimes for some people, when we go through periods of being really ecstatic and joyful and blissful, that that's, that's equally hard to embrace. You know, sometimes when, when bliss arises in meditation, and it's so unfamiliar, it feels threatening. Anybody had that experience? That the bliss and the radiance is so expansive and the ego identity is so freaked out that it's suddenly going to dissolve into nothingness, that there's a contraction. So how do we brace that part of ourselves too? You know? Often when I'm teaching retreat, you know, we teach in the Vipassana form, it's a silent retreat, and we encourage a sort of inward gaze and focus and um, and slowing down of the pace so it looks a little like a zombie you know kind of psych ward and um, people get a little serious and because uh, we have this notion in 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 this culture that being spiritual means being serious you know being you know dour and uh, something some weird trip that we have about you know that this is serious business so we've got to look serious and and it's not about being serious. It's not about being Tao. It's not about being grim. It's not about being real. It's about being awake. It's about being alive, being human, and being whatever you are in that moment, whether it's joyful or beautiful or ecstatic or peaceful or sad or loving or tearful or mournful. Right? How do you allow the fullness? You know? Another question to ask you could ask yourself is, what aspect of my humanness don't I allow? what aspect of my humanness don't i give room for you can you can ask you can ask answer that question or understand that, answer that question by seeing how you structure your life and what you give time and space and energy and money for right there may be a lot of aspects to yourself that you don't give that you don't allow mostly cuz you don't give room for well when i retire i'll write that book you know when I'm, you know, have enough money, then I'll travel the world. Or when I'm, you know, how many how many postponements do we do that's really a postponement of some part of ourselves? Right. So, you know, how many projects do we have sitting on the shelf that we'd love to get to do if we had time? But for some reason we don't make time. And often it's the more beautiful parts of ourselves, the poetic, the imaginative, the creative the part of us that wants to serve that wants to help in some way that we get so caught up in the day to day in the business of our lives that we don't make room for so what else do we have to embrace in our humanness we have to embrace our bodies yeah these amazing mysterious things called bodies how do we how do we uh, how do you like your body? <laughs> you know, how do you relate to it? We love it when it works, right? <laughs> we love it when it's healthy, and we love it when it's got energy and bright and you know, sleeps through the night and doesn't belch too much and get too much wind and, you know, embarrass us, you know, and our hair kind of falls the right way and all of that, and, You know, we have this, you know, we have a very narrow constraint of of, of the part of our bodies that we will embrace, right? So what about all the other times when we're not so juicy and fun and bright and healthy and buoyant and when we're sick and tired and... What's that like when we don't like how we look or how we feel or how we're aging? How many people like the way their body's aging? (laughs) We have one hand over there. Good man. (laughs) He's 12. I'm just kidding. This is another story from Byron Katie. Go up. Okay, back to being English, okay. Mm-hmm. So um, she's visiting a friend in hospital who has uh, cancer, and she says, The truth is, until we love cancer, we can't love what is. It doesn't matter what symbols we use, poverty, loneliness, or loss. It's the concepts of good and bad that we attach to them that make us suffer. I was sitting once with a friend who had a huge tumor, and the doctors had given her just a few weeks to live. As I was leaving her bedside, she said, I love you. And I said, no, you don't. You can't love me until you love your tumor. Every concept that you put into your tumor, you will eventually put onto me. The first time I don't give you what you want or threaten what you believe, you'll put that concept onto me. This might sound harsh, but my friend had asked me always to tell the truth. So so if our, you know if what we can't love in ourselves you know, is, is a limitation on our capacity to love what's out there because it's the same. Right? That which we react to out there is because we're reacting to that which is in here. So I remember when I got Bell's palsy this time last year, um, and um, I was teaching a day of uh, a meta retreat, a day of loving kindness, and uh, I woke up in that morning and I and I I couldn't um, I couldn't spit my toothpaste out. It was the first sign that something was up, and I thought oh, I just slept on a muscle or something. And it was a little numb from sleeping, and so I you know, went through the day and. As I was going through the day teaching, it, it got more and more weird to speak and numb and just, you know, I kept asking the manager, I said, you know, do, do I look weird? Because I kind of feel weird. She's like, no, not much more than usual, just, you know. You know. <laughs> and, um, but at the end of the day, it was starting to get quite numb. My face was kind of ossifying and so I called a friend and they said I'll call a doctor and so I went to the ER and they thought I might have a stroke and it turned out to be Bell's palsy and... Um, which was kind of a trip, you know, you whole you your face, goes numb, and you start driveling and sagging and, you know, prematurely aging on one side of your face, and, and um, I was, it was, this, this was the next day, and I was sort of just kind of readjusting to this idea that my face had, you know, fallen off the map a little bit, and um was one, you know, it can be permanent, so I was a little, you know, anxious about that, and um, and I was dancing I, I, as I do on Sunday mornings, and, um, and I was just kind of touching my face and, and just feeling a difference. And, and then the thought came to me, "Oh, I could love this. What would it be? I could love this too. Like this is what' this being asked is. I can love this too." And it was a really beautiful moment to, to, to opening to that condition, and, um, and really, that's what life is always asking us to do you know meeting you know asking us can we meet something is can we love it they're the same meeting something with awareness is meeting it with love it's it's not different so you know when i was dribbling my tea and stuff i wasn't loving it so much in those moments as you can imagine but um you know we're human and we we ebb and flow and things our heart open and closes and um and the teaching set this very high bar you know of Can we love everything? Not because you should, you know, but because to not do that is to suffer. Whatever we whatever our heart is close to, whatever we don't open to, in some way there's contraction and resistance and suffering. So the teachings really, you know, are always a compass to what supports happiness and freedom and what supports the opposite, constriction, pain. And this is one of the ways we can look at that is where am I closed? And where is the suffering in that? And, how, and, and how, how, why is that? What causes that to be? So, what else about our humanness? We have the, the, the aspect of our our innate vulnerability, our innate insecurity. Right? There's nothing very reliable in this life, have you noticed? Yep. Right? Money, stocks, housing, you know, the solid, you know, American economy, health, friends, loved ones, parents, you know, children. Nothing is very reliable. How do we meet that? How do we stay open with that rather than close and get bitter and resentful? Which is an option. It's always an option. It doesn't really make many happy people, I know, but the wisdom of insecurity, Alan Watts put it, that the only security, insecurity is the only security we have. So we take refuge in what? We take refuge in not knowing. And finding at ease, finding, finding a way to open to that, not knowing. What is it like to not to not know and to, and to keep the heart open? Which means the risk of being hurt, being vulnerable. Right? Maybe it's a risk worth taking. So this is another poem. I don't know who wrote this either, but maybe somebody here will tell me who wrote it. It's a book about, uh, it's a poem about... Um, Asking God questions, whatever you take God to be. I asked God to take away my habit. God said, No, it is not for me to take away, but for you to give up. I asked God to take my handicapped child to make my handicapped child whole. God said no, his spirit is whole, his body is only temporary. I asked God to grant me patience. God said no, patience is a byproduct of tribulations. It isn't granted, it is learned. I asked God to give me happiness. God said, "No. I give you blessings. Happiness is up to you." I asked God to spare me pain. He said, "No. God said, "No. Suffering draws you apart from worldly cares and brings you closer to me." I asked God to make my spirit grow. God said, "No. You must grow on your own, but I will prune you to make you fruitful." I asked God for all things. I asked God for all things that I might enjoy life. God said, No, I will give you life so that you may enjoy all things. I asked God to help me love others as much as He loves me. God said, Ah, finally you have the right idea. (laughs) So, in loving others, in loving ourselves, we develop our capacity to love others. Very simple which is why these teachings place so much emphasis on understanding the relationship with ourselves, improving the quality of openness and kindness towards ourselves. As I said, because how we meet ourselves, how we meet what manifests in this mind-body is how we will meet whatever comes in our life. The Buddha said, searching all directions with one's awareness One finds no one dearer than one's own self. In the same way, others are fiercely dear to themselves, so one should not hurt others if one loves oneself. As we love ourselves, we value ourselves, we see the preciousness of life, we inevitably value that in others. So... Where is, where is your heart and this quality of openness in relationship to other people? Is our heart boundless? Is it limited? You know, the qualities of matter and compassion, these the boundless qualities of heart that Buddha talked about, that aren't so differentiating of who we give our love to, that there's a kind of a, there's a, kind of a, a wellspring of goodness that flows from the heart. That's our potential. Usually our love's limited more to nearest and dearest people on our team. This is from D.H. Lawrence. He said, those who go looking for love never find love. Only the loving find love, and they truly never have to look for it. Those who go looking for love never find love. But those who really give freely of their love realize it's already here. This is a great koan for us. Or Rumi puts it this way: Every growing thing, as it grows, says this truth: You harvest what you sow. You harvest what you sow. With life as short as a half-taken breath, don't plant anything but love. So, as I mentioned here before, you know, I grew up Catholic, and um, we were always told to love our neighbors, and I always found that challenging because I didn't like my neighbors as a kid, and um, so I couldn't quite make sense of that teaching. Um, I like the people across the road, actually, but I didn't like my neighbors. <laughs> so, and I was never told how to do it, so I was kind of resentful that I was told just to love them, you know, and it's like, well, that's a great idea, but, you know. <laughs> it's a little harder than harder to do than just to say. So um, so I've appreciated the the my my study in, in this tradition because I it it felt like it's given me some resources, you know. Uh, how to turn towards you know, but this idea of turning towards that which we're instead of you know, aversion is this movement away from, especially in regard to people. And what's it like to turn towards those people that we are having trouble with? What's it like to lean into, to open to, those that we're having difficulty with? To feel our common humanity, to feel how the heart opens as we open to our own pain, to feel that empathic quality that comes so much more naturally. This is from Trungpa Rinpoche. He says, When you awaken your heart, when your heart opens, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. And if you search for the awakened heart, there is nothing but tenderness. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness or compassion. This experience of sadness and compassion is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed it is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. So this is a beautiful way of, of speaking about what I've been saying, that as we touch into our heart, as we feel our hearts open to ourselves, if we, when we don't put up those barriers, there's a tenderness that's there, a vulnerability. And we feel we become more sensitized to the suffering that's around us, not so closed off. Joanna Macy, the Buddhist teacher and scholar, she talks about how the greatest threat to the world is not nuclear weapons or ecological catastrophe or famine or all the things that we often talk about, but it's the the capacity for the heart to go numb, because when we go numb, we shut off our response, and the response is what's needed to relieve suffering. So here's another little story. This is from um, Mary Oliver who speaks about her grandmother. You know, what we practice, we become, right? So if we practice kindness, if we practice presence, if we practice awareness, then what happens? That over time becomes more intrinsic to who we are and it naturally unfolds. Have you noticed as you practice mindfulness, you become more aware? Have you noticed that? Anybody notice that? Hope so. <laughs> right? Starts to unflo- starts to flow. Right. This is from, this is, she was writing about a grandmother. She called, in praise of craziness of a certain kind. On cold evenings, my grandmother, with ownership of only half her mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, spread newspapers over the porch floor, so she said, the garden ants could crawl underneath as, as if under a blanket and keep warm. And what shall I wish for, for myself? but being so struck by the lightning of years to be like her with what is left, that loving. Mm -hmm. So we can practice opening our hearts, we can practice kindness. What what would it be to practice, to allow this heart to express itself through our actions, through our words, as kindness? Kindness. As the bumper sticker goes, the practicing random acts of kindness. Have you ever been on the receiving end of those, you know, in the toll booth or different situations? This, this, my friend of mine sent me this story. She owns a restaurant up in um, up north somewhere, Bellingham, and she says, "Well, we can only bow deeply to a certain Mr. Florey." who was dining alone and gave no reason for his gift of paying for everyone's meal that night in the restaurant. Perhaps he was seized suddenly by a deep love for everyone present and wished to nourish and feed them. Perhaps he was paying something forward or a stealth random large act of kindness kind of guy. Or he just felt like it, who knows. But he certainly made the day for a number of people who can't stop talking about it. What a lovely gift and a big thank you to Mr. Flory for choosing my restaurant to give it in. What I love about that story is, is the line where she says that the number of people who can't stop talking about that random act of kindness, you know that, that those, those, those acts go a long way, spreading seams of connection. This is from Naomi Shihab Nye, called Red Brickade. The Arabs used to say, when a stranger appears at your door, feed him for three days before asking who he is, where he's come from, and where he's headed. That way he'll have enough strength enough to answer. Or oh, by then you'll be such good friends you don't even care. Let's go back to that. Rice? Pine nuts? Here, take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I wasn't busy when you came, and I wasn't preparing to be busy. That's the armor everyone put on, puts on to pretend they had a purpose in the world. I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is waiting. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. So let's close with a little meditation. So just close your eyes. Bring your attention to your heart. Feel the breath in the center of your chest. Maybe put your hand on your chest if it helps you connect with your heart. And to just ask the question, what part of your humanness is hard for you to embrace right now. What part of you, your heart, your body, your mind is hard hard to open to? And then just imagine holding that 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 part of you, however, you do that visually. Imagine like you're inviting it into the center of your heart, like a flower in the sun's rays. And you can offer it words of loving kindness. to yourself, to this part of you. Holding it in such a kind way that you're not trying to fix it, get rid of it. Simply allow it to be there, allow it to be held in presence, in love. And perhaps making an intention Bring as much kindness to this place, this part of you, wishing yourself well, may I be happy and peaceful, may this part of me be at ease, may I hold this part of me with kindness and tenderness. And just imagining now expanding that out into your life and reflecting on a place or a person where your heart is closed, fearful, contracted. And see if you can bring that same quality to this person, the situation. May I hold this person, this situation with kindness and ease. May this person also be happy, feel safe, feel at ease. now just extending this wish of kindness out to everybody here in the room that you've been sitting with, breathing with, supporting each other in your practice. May we all be embraced with kindness. May our hearts open to the gift of loving kindness. May we take care of ourselves happily. May we treat our bodies and hearts and minds with respect and dignity. Thank you, everybody, for your practice and your attention. And I'd like to thank all the volunteers who helped make this event happen. And before you go, if you'd like to take your chairs back to the side and drive carefully. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit DharmaSed.org slash donate.